This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I'm not sure as we start whether we're going to have a guest on today's show. We'll have to see how things evolve. But you know, as usual, we're behind on material. So if we spend today catching up, I think that'll work out just fine. So, let us commence this show as we like to do with On This Date in History. The date in question is the 2nd of September. We're making fun of some date a few weeks ago because nothing seemed to have ever happened on that day. But boy, it's not the case today. It was on September 2nd in 490 B.C. that the Greeks routed the Persians at the Battle of Marathon and, according to tradition, sent a trained runner named Philippides back to Athens with the good news. His 26-mile jaunt, which exhausted and killed him, inspired the modern marathon. Always wondered about a race inspired by the first guy that did it having keel over dead. But apparently the original marathon came on the heels of some other running he'd been doing, and I guess it caught up with him. Thing is, marathon was a hell of a battle, and everybody seems to have forgotten about it in the wake of the guy that did all the running. And 459 years later, on September 2nd and 31 BC, the naval forces of Octavian defeated Antony and Cleopatra in the Battle of Actium, fought off the Greek coast. Apparently, Cleopatra's forces uh, broke, and Antony ran after her rather than tending to the battle, which I guess explains why Octavian is better known to history as Caesar Augustus, as opposed to, say, Antony Augustus. I think was a pretty good golfer, wasn't he, Mr. McMillan? I believe so. Yeah. And the hits keep coming. On September 2nd in 1192, the Third Crusade ended as the English king Richard the Lionhearted and the Islamic sultan Saladin signed a peace treaty that allowed pilgrims access to holy sites in Muslim-held Jerusalem. The English king, by the way, spoke French. And uh, per my understanding, Saladin, by all accounts, was a very wise leader. Might be worth digressing momentarily to note that during this time, it was the Islamic world that preserved the writings of ancient Greece, so that a few centuries later there could be a renaissance. The Christian churches of Europe saw it as their duty to get a hold of and burn every manuscript they could get their hands on. Something which seems to be wholly forgotten uh, in the modern world, at least the modern world of the zealous Christian. We will have more to say about that later in the show. On September 2nd in 1666, the Great Fire of London began with a blaze at the house of the King's Baker, which spread across the city, eventually destroying 13,000 houses, 90 churches, and many public buildings. September 2nd in 1752 marked the last day of the use of the Julian calendar in England and the American colonies. It was dropped in favor of the Gregorian calendar. Eleven days of that year, September 3rd through 13th inclusive, vanished as the calendar was adjusted forward so that September 14th followed September 2nd. This caused riots all over the place as people insisted they'd been cheated out of that many days in their life, which is pretty stupid. But I guess if you had your birthday during that period, that was kind of a, kind of a bum deal. 
On this date in 1940, during World War II, the United States gave Great Britain 50 overage destroyers for use against German U-boats in return for long-term leases on British naval bases. This lend-lease action was a desperate move by President Roosevelt to shore up the British efforts against Nazi Germany. For the Republican-held U.S. Senate insisted that the U.S. remain neutral during the hostilities. I think some of those senators are still around. Well, maybe not literally. On this date in 1944, young U.S. naval aviator Lieutenant George Herbert Walker Bush was shot down and, unfortunately for history, was rescued. He later became America's nincompoop 41st president and father of the even more atrocious 43rd president. On September 2nd in 1945, aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay, Japan formally surrendered to the Allies, bringing an official end to World War II. On the very same day, Vietnamese Communist leader Ho Chi Minh copied from the American Declaration of Independence as he proclaimed Vietnam independent. All men are born equal, said Ho Chi Minh. The Creator has given us inviolable rights of life, liberty, and happiness. It wasn't to be. It turned out, uh, during part of the deals cut in the wake of World War II, it was agreed by the Allies that the French could retake Indochina from the Japanese, which led basically to 30 years of war, first between French forces and the Vietnamese, and later between American and Vietnamese armies. While a unified Vietnam finally achieved independence in 1975, Ho Chi Minh did not live to see it, for he died on this date in 1969, which coincidentally marked the last regular episode of the original Star Trek on American television. And as we all know, this American sci-fi classic program uh, would achieve eternal life, or so it would seem, in in reruns and spinoffs and movies and conventions. And if I may digress again slightly... Would note that last year I had a chance to see Bill Shatner perform in a play written by Ray Bradbury back in the 1960s. Leviathan was its name. He was joined on the stage by Walter Koenig, also known as Chekhov in the original Star Trek, as well as the legendary actor Norman Lloyd, about whom we'll have more to say a little bit later. But anyway, pretty eventful day in history. And oh yeah, I forgot to mention, Bill Shatner, pretty good actor actually. And no, I'm not kidding when I say that. He was. He was good. Anyway, that may be kind of a record for, uh, for uh, this day in history. And so what the hell? Let's set a record for quotes and quips, shall we? I was in San Diego uh, a few weeks ago and ran into a book called If Ignorance is Bliss, Why Aren't There More Happy People? Which is a book of uh, smart quotes for dumb times, it says. Some pretty good selections in there. How about this one from Socrates? which will be one of many quotes of the day. By all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll be happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. How about this one from Cardinal Richelieu? Give me six lines written by the most honorable man, and I will find an excuse to hang him. Cardinal Richelieu, of course, later went to work in the George W. Bush Justice Department. How about this one from H.L. Mencken? Under democracy, one party always devotes its chief energies to trying to prove that the other party is unfit to rule, and both commonly succeed and are right. 
How about this one from Andrew Jackson, which doesn't come from the book. It is to be regretted that the rich and powerful too often bend the acts of government to their selfish purposes. I think we'll do five. This one doesn't come from the book either, but it's a good one. From S.I. Hayakawa. The last thing a scientist would do is cling to a map because he inherited it from his grandfather or because it was used by George Washington. All right, let's do five quips. Let's pull a few out of uh, If Ignorance is Bliss. Why aren't there more happy people? All right, said the immortal Alfred Hitchcock. The television set in American homes is like the toaster. You press a button and the same thing pops out almost every time. How about this one from Tony Curtis? I wouldn't be caught dead marrying a woman old enough to be my wife. Here's one I like from Anatole France. The law, in its majestic equality, forbids the rich as well as the poor to sleep under bridges, to beg in the streets, and to steal bread. All right, and two others that weren't from that book, but I just love. The first comes from the Bible, from Ecclesiastes 9.11. You know this one. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, but time and chance happeneth to them all. But one-upping Ecclesiastes was the wag Wilson Misner, who said, The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, but that's how to bet. All right, and for our joke of the day, I think I'll quote from a book I got of lawyer jokes, starting with, What have you got when you have three lawyers up to their necks in wet cement? Answer is, well, you've got to get some more cement. And how about, what's brown and black and looks good on a lawyer? Answer, a Doberman pincher. And finally, standing around the grave of a departed friend were an anthropologist, a doctor, and a lawyer. When the eulogies were over, the anthropologist suggested they all put some money into the coffin, as was the practice of some ancient tribes that he'd been studying. The anthropologist pulls out a $50 bill and deposit it lovingly, and deposit it lovingly in the coffin. Not to be outdone, the doctor also pulls out a $50 bill, and he too deposits it in the coffin. The lawyer looks down, writes out a check for $150, bucks, and reaches it and takes the two fifties. Alright, our stat of the day comes from The Week magazine, which notes that 53% of Americans believe that the war in Iraq will always be considered a failure. Reportedly, 42% of this Gallup poll believe that eventually it will be judged a success. And no, we don't know where they found those people. But uh, speaking of The Week magazine, let's see if we can't jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, we should note that our selections in this section do not inevitably come from the week, but of course their good week four, bad week four section does sort of lend itself toward citing some items. So it is that we begin with the fact that it was a good week for, according to the magazine, personal reinvention after Senator John McCain of Arizona fought off a primary challenge by spending a record $20 million denying he'd ever thought of himself as a maverick 
and demanding that the government shut down the Mexican border and keep gays out of the military, a reversal of his previous positions on both those issues. Said McCain with surprising honesty, we had to do what it takes. I can't believe I actually voted for that guy. Well, in the year 2000 anyway, in the Republican primary. But I don't feel bad. I changed my registration from independent to Republican so I could vote against George W. Bush. That brings up a quote we should have cited. I don't, remember who's, I don't know who said it, but somebody once said, remember that when you make a choice of the lesser of two evils, it's still an evil. Anyway, where were we? Uh, bad week four. It was a bad week last week for overreacting. After reports of a 12-foot crocodile off the beach of Boulogne-sur-Mer, France, prompted the officials to ban swimming there. The croc, however, turned out to be a large chunk of driftwood. All I can say to that is, crikey, mate! And I really like this next item. It was an ugly week last week for tweaking the nose of the police. When a German bank robber found himself arrested after he emailed police to correct factual errors in their accounts of his crime. (laughs) Said Germany's build, the 19-year-old robber, who was not named, mocked officers for having misreported his age, height, and accent, and for having thought he'd escaped on foot when he'd used a car. Police, somewhat naturally, traced the suspect's email and arrested him in a gambling parlor. Here's the part I love best. Said a police spokesman. His game of cat and mouse went all wrong. All right, from the letters to the editor file, we have the following. And by the way, we don't have any letters to quote from from our own mailbox because none of you sent one in this week. Let's see if we can't do better, ladies and gentlemen. Drop us a line at info at Radio Parallax. You, you might teach us something. We're going to borrow then from the letters to the editor section of New Scientist magazine. Apparently a man named Richard Sutcliffe wrote the magazine to report that his favorite road sign was, display, was displayed widely in the mountains of Colorado, and I'd say here in California too, which was, Icy Conditions May Exist. Sutcliffe suggested that that sign may be followed by one that says, Next philosopher, 500 miles. But you know, the uh, Highway Department of Colorado is right. Icy conditions may exist. And someone wrote Marilyn Vos Savant, one of our favorite columnists in Parade magazine, asked, So much oil is being pumped from the earth, will it result in caverns? Said Marilyn, it already has. The shrinking of surface land or subsidence extends far beyond that. The removal of oil, gas, coal, and other minerals can lead to a variety of problems. And she goes on and on a little bit about that. But I liked her conclusion. After mentioning deep fissures some hundreds of feet long in the U.S. Southwest, Maryland said, agencies such as the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization have been working on the problem of subsidence for decades. Yes, why don't we get together a U.N. panel to investigate the problems of the fact that objects keep falling or that water keeps getting people wet. Yes, if you, if you pump things out, the ground's going to subside. I don't care what the UN has to say about it. And speaking of idiocy in the UN, which we're sorry to see juxtaposed in this item, according to the Washington Post, an exhaustive UN investigation into the history of violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo 
has concluded that the Rwandan military and its allies carried out hundreds of large-scale killings of ethnic Hutu refugees during the 1990s that amounted to war crimes. Apparently, this 545-page-long report details the crimes committed in Congo from March 1993 to June 2003. is described as representing the, quote, harshest UN account to date of the conduct of the ethnic Tutsi-dominated Rwandan government, unquote. This just in, UN study, apparently the Nazis behaved pretty badly in World War II. They've written a report. It contains some pretty harsh criticism. This report's taken, what, only only seven years to develop? Anyway, enough said about that. Let's go back to New Scientist. I love this one. The magazine noted that many readers wrote in suggesting that sporting excuses based on the Coriolis effect wouldn't stand up. The magazine noted in its June 31st issue that it, it has been stated often enough that south of the equator, bathwater spins clockwise, from which it follows that the behavior of footballs will be similarly affected. Of course, the whole thing has no foundation. John Watkins wrote in a note that the effect on footballs is real and measurable, just not significant. The magazine noted that in its reply, they meant to say that the whole bathtub spin thing is an urban legend, but they didn't say it in so many words. But they meant it. For some reason, that's just a pet peeve of ours on this program. The water in the drain, the water in the bathtub, the water in the toilet does not spin one way. And yes, the Coriolis force is real. It just doesn't affect the drain water. And actually, I I think I misspoke a moment ago when I said no one sent anything. And actually, we have Stephen Valentino to thank for an item from, oddly enough, the Wall Street Journal. He said when he read this, he immediately thought, of Radio Parallax. So please, so thanks, Stephen, and allow me to quote from the piece by Michael M. Phillips. Dateline, Kabul, Afghanistan. Safi Airways, a startup Afghan airline, ventures where few air carriers dare to go. Its in-flight magazine tells the ugly truth about the place you're about to land in. Noting that American Airlines magazine lists the 10 best pizza parlors in America and United Airlines has a spread headlined, Three Perfect Days in Amsterdam, presumably perfecting its 2007 article, Three Perfect Days, colon, Amsterdam. But if you're flying Safi in the seat pocket in front of you, you'll find articles on Kabul heroin addicts, photos of bullet pock tourist sites, and ads for mine-resistant sport utility vehicles. Article notes, the airline provides this insider's tip about one of the city's leading luxury hotels. Quote, The rooms are individually air-conditioned, accessorized with amenities you will find in four-star hotels abroad. Sheets are clean, view from the room is nice, and after the suicide bombing that took place, security measures have been implemented. Said Christian Marx, the magazine's cheerfully blunt German editor, I would like it to be a magazine where you can read interesting things, not get brainwashed by some marketing agency that says you can't show problems. One recent edition featured a long, approving piece headlined, Live Entertainment in Kabul, Dog Fighting. Writer apparently said that the dogs in Afghanistan don't fight to the death just till one proves dominant. They're usually pulled apart before they can inflict serious damage on each other. The article reassures passengers... 
despite the accompanying photo of two worried Afghans carrying away a limp black-and-white behemoth from the fight. Safi flies routes between Kabul and Frankfurt, Dubai, and Kuwait. Its passengers are mostly aid workers, security consultants, journalists, defense contractors, and diplomats who go into the war zone with eyes wide open. Let's face it, said the airline's chief commercial officer, Klaus Fischer, anyone going to Afghanistan is not some tourist who's going hiking. Indeed, the magazine warns at one point, quote, riots happen occasionally and are often accompanied by looting. Or how about this one? The Bibi Marul swimming pool overlooking Kabul offers a beautiful view of the city, but contains no water. Anyway, we have to give a tip of the hat to Christian Marks and uh, Safi Airlines for, you know, some refreshing honesty in their in-flight magazines. And you know, we know we can depend on our old pal Will Durst for an honest opinion. Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few choice words about Labor Day. The Rodney Dangerfield of holidays. The runt of the celebration litter. It's the last plastic souvenir sports bottle of lemonade on the dying coals of summer. The beginning of the end of the bright light and the harbinger of the darkness. Swimming pools are drained, ice cream trucks tie up their bells and convoy back into hibernation, and the line between baseball's ninth inning and football's kickoff gets crossed. The solstice is dead. Long live the autumnal equinox. As a kid, I was too busy recoiling from the looming specter of school and the end of my freedom to pay much attention to the meaning or even the name of the holiday, Labor Day, a 24-hour period to honor the American worker. I'm talking about real folks who don't think work ethic is a dirty word, or dirty two words, or whatever. That sentiment seems a bit archaic these days, so maybe this is the perfect time to trot out that old chestnut that if it weren't for the blue collars, there wouldn't be any white collars, much less $4,500 Brioni gray pinstripe merino wool suits. Without labor, we'd still be nomads, boiling river water to wash down our nightly meal of beans and mush and roots and moss, getting way too friendly with the livestock. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, there's no fireworks to watch, or ugly birds to cook, or chocolate-covered bunnies to steal marshmallows from. Just one Monday off for all those ordinary guys and gals trying to make ends meet, raising 2.3 kids while juggling a mortgage and trying to cover the monthly cable bill with at least one premium channel thrown in. A day we celebrate what it is that we do for a living by taking the day off from work. Paying tribute not to our founding fathers or fancy movie stars or rich and bloated athletes, but to us, the real American heroes, you and me. All right, mostly you. Happy Labor Day, everybody. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. 